Hello, and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing, uh, I think, I don't know. I was going to say same as most people, but I actually don't know that that's, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I've always been, I think I'm probably <laughs> suited to isolation and quarantine of this type, you know, the shelter in place uh, better than most people. So I, I probably have, so I definitely have a lot of sympathy for people who are going stir crazy and who are, who are missing uh, seeing their friends in person and all the things that uh, are important to a lot of people. Um, but I don't know, this wasn't what I was going to talk about, but you asked me how I'm doing and I, sure. I've been thinking about the fact, because uh, my, yeah, my wife just last night was like, she was like, you seem so, she was like, you're cool as a cucumber. You seem so unaffected, which isn't true. I'm very, you know, worried and freaked out like a lot of people, but, mm. uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I'm doing okay, uh, emotionally with all this, I think, and psychologically, um, but with a lot of, uh, uh, like I said, sympathy for, for people who aren't, but I, mm. what I, what I am uh, from a movie point of view, Tyler, from a okay. movie lover point of view, what I am, uh, uh, not freaking out. What I am getting anxious about is, um, what is the year, like, what is the year, what does the second half of 2020 look like as a movie year? Like, how how do we do all the end of year stuff? Like, is everything just going to be like crammed up? Because you look at like, yeah, some things have, have made VOD debuts, mm-hmm. but it still feels like a lot of stuff is just getting pushed indefinitely. And there's just going to be a glut of stuff at some point. How are we going to get through it all? How are we going to watch all the movies this year? Well, I probably won't. Uh, but also, yeah. Um, you know, on one hand, I find it oddly invigorating uh, from a not a not as a watcher. Obviously, it's overwhelming as a watcher. But yeah. Um, but again, I, I reference this class all the time that that marketing class that I took, uh, we spent a week on release date and just how much time is spent on that. Just like so much research goes into what other movies are coming out that week, what movies came out the week before or two weeks before, what kind of cultural events are happening as far as like a sporting event or an award show or whatever it is, because you just, you need to be careful um, that there isn't too much of a certain type of, of conflict, um, especially with certain, uh, certain types of movies, you know, you, you don't release an action movie the weekend of the Super Bowl, but you can release a, a smaller horror movie, um, or something like that. And so like, there's so much preparation that goes into it that one thing that excites me. And I realize that yes, people's jobs are affected, all of that. So in a vacuum, what excites me is just all of that careful preparation going totally out the window and then studios scrambling to like, because now it's one thing when you get like one, like if it's, if especially if it's this time of, uh, of year, you get like a tentpole movie every week or two. And that's the one people are going to see, but now they all have to really compete with each other. Uh, and I'm really excited to see, uh, what could happen, uh, on that front again, 
this is purely in a vacuum. I, I'm sorry if that sounds callous, um, both from the people that could, whose jobs could be affected if a film doesn't do well, and then also the people that, uh, like ourselves, who may wind up having to spend a fair amount of money in order to see a lot of things in yeah. a short amount of time where normally that would be spread out over the course of the year. So I am sympathetic towards that. Don't get me wrong, but it still is, is intriguing to see how this is going to play out as far yeah. as the, the competition standpoint. Yeah. I, but I'm also the, uh, we talked about it a little bit last week, I think, but um, the thing of movies that are, were very recently in theaters being available um, on VOD already. Yeah. Uh, like, I think, I think Natalie and I are going to watch um, birds of prey this weekend, not a movie we would have gone out to see, hmm. but we'll spend 20 bucks because that's less than we would have spent for two movie tickets. Probably. Right. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's we're, been... we're both in it. We're both into it enough to, to, to see. So like, that's one thing this is doing is I'm watching a movie. I probably would have completely skipped and was planning on skipping you know one thing i've read a couple articles at this point about uh the the marketplace attitude which is to say the consumer attitude about uh what you're what you're describing uh and there is uh, a pushback against spending that much money on a movie that you would watch at home because like and i think it it, it it's all context you know of course, the movie would cost about that much if you were to go see it in the theater. Uh, and so this is just like, well, we still want to make it available to you, but we still need to get the money that we need to make. Uh, but there, there has been a, a sort of a, a pushback and, a, and a, not a rebellion, that sounds more active than it is, but like definitely a resistance to, um, to my, movies at home costing that much. Uh, and there have been a lot of audiences, uh, audience members and, and uh, film viewers who feel like that is it's asking too much and all that. Again, not really looking at the overall context, only thinking in terms of when I rent a movie at home, I expect it to cost at most six dollars. Um, and why don't these cost that? And so one thing that I comb out of that, because, you know, these are movie, movies like Mulan, which granted it, that just got pushed. Yeah. But uh you know, movies that people would probably have gone to see otherwise, and they would have spent whatever the theater was charging, but it sounds wrong to spend it now, maybe because they feel like, well, we have less money, but I think it's also because as much as you and I have said, maybe it's not the case anymore. I do think that people unconsciously understand that there is a, a, a very uh, tangible difference between watching something in the theater and watching something at home at home is cheap. The theater is an event. We're going out. Yes, we're not get, we're not dressing up in our tuxes or anything like that, but we are going out and it's an event. And thus I'm willing to spend a little bit more money on it. So uh, from a film going standpoint, like from so many aspects of movies, this moment has been really fascinating because I don't um, think it can be, it's ever going to be replicated again No, uh, in our lifetime. Hopefully well, you, remind, you reminded me of something that has nothing to do with movies, but that I was just thinking about today when you talked about, when you joked about putting on a tuxedo, but um, so Natalie Mac tomorrow, well, this has already happened as of the time you're hearing this. So tomorrow's when we're recording this is our friend's birthday. And so she sent in like a zoom invite out and to a bunch of people. So we're all going to like 
hang out and have drinks quote unquote for her birthday. And she put like in the invite, she put like a suggestion to like dress up. And I actually think that's kind of like a (laughs) cool idea. Like I think, you know, in a different context, if this were like a remote meetup and someone said, you should dress up for it. I'd be like, get like, yeah, get out of here. What are you trying to do? Like, I don't have time for that, but it's actually like, that's one thing that I have not going to work for two weeks. And as someone who likes to occasionally look nice, you know, mm-hmm. to put on a tie and a jacket or whatever, like not having any reason to do that is sad to me. And so I'm actually kind of like excited to like, uh, yeah, put on a tie and a jacket. Well, I was hoping that this would have been a reason, but I guess not, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, what I'm saying is the real tragedy of all this uh, isolation is no one gets to see how cute I look. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, pa- the the patrons do, uh, sure, at least yeah. the admirals. The so, admirals, you yeah. Know, you can join. Yet another if reason. you want to see how cute I look, <laughs> if you want to see what a quarantine cutie I am, you just got to cough up 10 bucks a month for the Patreon video uh, tier. All right. Uh, my friend, uh, my friend Tyler Stracely, who's written for uh, uh, the Good Place on Instagram, uh, he's he's a very specific type of clever that I appreciate and hate. Um, and so he was talking about like he can't wait, and other people have said stuff like this, but like he can't wait to see uh, uh, the movies and TV shows made specifically about this moment and yeah. so like he he did a mock-up of a poster called socal distancing and uh it's about <laughs> these these friends that are all like stuck in a stuck in a, an apartment together and stuff so anyway that's funny all right uh do we have a sponsor oh yes we do thank you um yeah this episode is brought to you by uh the killing floor uh by jackson harper it is a new album uh oh that's right uh so Specifically, Jackson Harper, the, the artist formerly known as A Horse and His Boy, uh, co-produced with Ryan Michael from Dallas band The Room Sounds. The Killing Floor is a raw, intimate, yet ultimately epic tale of love lost and wisdom gained. Through 11 songs and one brief anecdote, Harper weaves together lyrical themes of heartbreak, longing, anger, death, resurrection, and joy, presenting them in a stark acoustic style that recalls Johnny Cash or Towns Van Zandt. The Killing Floor, as well as Harper's Music City exports ep is available for purchase on itunes or streaming on spotify apple and all major platforms uh and so uh, another thing he didn't ask me to uh plug this but uh uh jackson has also started a uh a, a very small youtube channel of him reading uh children's books to nobody um just to the screen and to my knowledge he's not speaking to any particular kids but if you want to see this guy who is who if i were a child i would say he is uh, uh unapproachable um <laughs> have him reading children's books to uh check him out but uh, in the meantime check out the killing floor uh by jackson harper now is the time to try to uh support people where you can and uh so i'd say his, his albums are available again for purchase on iTunes. And so uh, I'd say check those out and, and help where you can. All right. I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. Uh, they sound great as I should know, right? I'm literally using them right now. Uh, and, they're, uh, and Tyler and I use them each and every day. Um, today, lately on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds, I've been listening to Tyler a lot of 
just like because I'm home and I have a lot of work to do and I'm not like in my office office i'm not actually even in my home office because natalie's using the home office i'm mm-hmm. at the dining room table um and so my way of sort of like just pushing out distractions has been i've been listening to a lot of ambient music like long form avant-garde ambient uh, uh music and i've and i've discovered so or i guess i shouldn't say discovered obviously i didn't discover him um, but even i i was i realized retroactively that i was familiar with his music but have, are you aware of an avant-garde composer named harold budd no so i become obsessed with this guy and i realized that i knew his music from he did he did the scores for both mysterious skin and white bird in the blizzard so he's oh, okay. uh when greg Araki gets serious he turns to <laughs> he turns to harold budd but i become obsessed with this guy's music and i'll tell you listening to ambient music on great earbuds makes it all the more impactful sure um and so it sounds great in my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low 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 price at tweakedaudio.com but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking what's your secret Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tyler? Yes? I am in no mood for my usual uh, bullshit. Okay, um, but this can you be more specific? the The number of this episode is divisible by ten, Got but it. not divisible by fifty. Okay, that means it's a profile. Normally, I try to drag that out um, because it uh, entertains me and maybe one or two listeners. Sure, um, but uh, yeah, I'm in no mood today uh, to do that. So we are we are profiling uh, profiling the career of of a filmmaker who is we this is what we do here every ten weeks if you don't know uh, we profile the career of a filmmaker usually someone who has died recently um, and so today we are ta- taking on the career of screenwriter Buck Henry now, Buck Henry is also an act was also an actor in fact has yeah. considerably more acting credits than screenwriting credits but for some reason I think of him as a screenwriter first that's interesting i think i probably i mean i don't think i think of him as any particular thing first uh the fact that i i'm aware that i know what he looks like and sounds like because of his acting but i also realize that he is the writer behind some pretty iconic films and so like that knowledge keeps me from instinctively identifying him uh as as an actor because and that because really what are like what are his iconic roles as an actor? Like he played himself in the player. Uh, sure. Yeah. Right? Um, he, I mean, he played Liz Lemon's dad in 30 rock. That's probably That's recently right. the, the, the That's big right. one. Um, but yeah. And he's, I mean, he's been in a, a number of things like often uh, like rarely the lead. Um, sometimes it's just like a bit part uh, in, in some of the films that he's written, he yeah. shows up. Yeah. That, um, that happens. So, yeah. Um, uh, 
he also, by the way, speaking of uh, an actor performer, do you know he's one of the he's uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Most one of the he was one of the most frequent SNL hosts. Like, oh, he hadn't done it in a long time, so people don't think of him. But he yeah. hosted SNL like nine times. Oh wow! <laughs> but mostly in like the seventies and eighties. That's anyway. cool. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'll say right off the bat, I um, am a big. I, I was a big fan of Buck Henry. Obviously, we'll get to the iconic things. Uh, you mentioned the word iconic. He literally wrote some iconic movies. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get to those. But weirdly, the first thing I always associate him with is something that I grew up watching reruns of, and that's Get Smart. Yeah. He co-created Get Smart with, with Mel Brooks. Um, and uh, it, for those who, I don't know, I guess there are those who don't know because even the even the most recent remake was 12 years ago, right? It was like 2008, the, the uh, Steve Carell movie? Yeah, that's correct. So, um, Steve Carell. That's what I said. You said Martin. I'm pretty sure I said Steve Carell. All right. Uh, <laughs> Let's throw it out to the listeners again. We saw how this happened before. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure I said Steve Carell. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, um, so yeah, for people who don't know, Get Smart was kind of, a, I guess it was like a parody of like a James Bond, Man from Uncle type of thing. Yeah, yeah. It was real gadget focused, so you had like the Q type, you know, the every episode had like ridiculous gadgets. Like, yeah control the uh government agency i guess that he mm-hmm. worked for must have been like fantastically obscenely well funded because they always had these crazy inventions yeah um uh but really he was uh the don adams played uh maxwell smart and he was uh bumbling but not in like a an oafish way to use a word you used on the recent uh, movie journal yeah oh, wait was that yeah that was a, that was a movie journal um um he's he's he comes across as very smart he's a smart dresser he's a yeah. he's a fast talker he's like a joe friday of joe friday were an idiot but who also always ends up winning um and part of the joke was that barbara felden's character agent 99 was always teamed up as his like assistant or his partner or whatever but she was the actual competent one in the duo yeah. uh the, the the show was always inventive and, and very very funny, um, and uh, I, I'll mention when we get to it. I'll mention the nude bomb, which is the only theatrical version of Get Smart. Um, but Buck Henry didn't actually write it, so right. uh, I'll mention when we get to it. I don't know. Do you have anything else to say about Get Smart? Uh, not not particularly. I mean, I watched it a lot when I was a kid. I haven't seen it in a while. I have no doubt that I would probably like it. I loved it then. I think yeah. I'd probably let, I'd probably love it more now uh, if yeah. I had to guess. Yeah. It was always also a show. I think I was turned on to it at a young age. Uh, I had parents who had good taste in comedy. I had parents mm-hmm. that, cause my mom really liked get smart. Um, and my dad really liked Monty Python and like <laughs> those are uh, big sort of formative things, but there are still like the, uh, um, you know, missed it by that much, or like, oh, of course. would you believe uh, uh, all, all the catchphrases that I still, I still say missed it by that much actually to Natalie quite a bit, even though she's yeah. not a get smart fan. Um, all right, so so that was sixty five to seventy. So mid get smart run is when we've got 
The Graduate, right? That's the first on my list. Uh, yeah, it's first on mine as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, he did a lot of TV writing as a lot of these guys did uh, in the 60s, um, which is to say that movies seem to recruit a lot of uh, TV writers and directors um, who seem to like be able to tap into to certain uh, cultural vibes and, and in some cases uh, set a new cultural standard, which The, the Graduate does. Um, and so I, I, I don't want to start every time we do one of these, we wind up finding, understandably, we wind up finding themes, uh, that's what's fun about them. Yeah. In an actor's career and stuff. And so with a writer, it can be, it can be particularly interesting because, you know, if it's somebody like a David Mamet, then like his style is very obvious no matter what. Whereas Buck Henry, uh, I think is able to adapt to different styles of comedy, different styles, of, you know, different genres and that sort of thing. But there is just, and I think he has, I think he has a way with dialogue. Um, and I think he is able to write, I think he's able to find whatever humor is in any situation, you know, like I, uh, for my, American film history class. We just watched uh, rebel without a cause. Uh, and then we uh, watched some clips from the graduate as we got into the 1960s and granted the stories themselves are different, but at the core is this idea of like uh, a, a directionless young man who feels like he can't relate to his parents or really anybody else and trying to figure out where he fits in the world. Like the, the stories are at the core. That's what both of them are. And you know, Rebel Without a Cause is is a melodrama because emotionally that is certainly how the character feels. Whereas uh, there is a really, there is a very dry humor to The Graduate. In fact, dry is probably a word I'm going to come, come up with uh, a few times. Which, uh, when, I, which, when I think of Buck Henry, either as a performer or as a, or as a writer, I think of a very dry kind of humor. And that's, that's, absolutely true but it's interesting you talked about him being able to do lots of different kinds of comedy like steve allen show and get smart like he's developed a career as like a joke writer and gag man yeah so the fact that like his most famous like movie screenplays are much subtler drier um uh, kind of comedy uh which once you start watching interviews with him which i've seen multiple interviews with him on like get smart uh special features mm-hmm. um uh, from the box set or i actually saw him uh interviewed in person at tcm fest a couple of years ago um his personal the way he comes across is much more the graduate than get smart oh yeah, i, I mean, no he, doubt yeah he's he was a very dry uh dry person but also one thing that i definitely noticed in watching movies and in thinking about the movies that I've already seen about him is that now I don't actually know um, what Buck Henry's politics were, mm-hmm. but there does seem to be a bit of conservatism to him, or at least a skepticism, I think about the counterculture of the sixties um, and, and um, uh, a sort of, uh, yeah, skepticism is what I'm looking for. A distrust of, these movements you know like sure. uh benjamin in in the graduate should be he's the right age you know he's a early 20s in 1967 but uh there's nothing for him in the counterculture right there's nothing for him 
anywhere. And I, I think that uh, you'll see over and over again in Buck Henry movies, you'll see a focus on the individual more sure. like societal structures or, or social structures or institutions um, are generally not to be trusted. I think in yeah. Buck Henry movies, um, which, which I think would, the individual be... is usually, well, it's sorry. Let me finish. The individual yeah, yeah. is usually sort of uh, uh, victimized by them in a lot of ways, um, or at least disaffected like Benjamin is. Which on one hand, that's the other thing is like, even if the characters themselves are not, um, are not uh, inclined to sort of buy into the institution. Um, I do think that there's certainly, I, I, I think that uh, looking at, institutions with suspicion like that is a very 60s attitude in general um and it's a very i'd say uh at the time a very liberal uh attitude especially i guess it depends on the institution but i mean when you think about it, it's like whether it be the military or the police or the government or whatever it is it's just like there is there is uh, this feeling of like we are on our own but the difference is that i think in the counterculture as i understand it at that time was there was a lot of focus on the communal you, you sure know? yeah power to the people and stuff yeah and i i i think that is something that buck henry sees as just another structure to be manipulated by untrustworthy people and that is not actually looking out for the individual i, th I think over and over again in his movies the 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 individual is uh more important um and does best thrives uh thrives more uh, the more they distance themselves from these structures. And I think one of the, th uh, yeah, I could, I could definitely see that. That is, that is an interesting um, take on his films. And now that you mention it, I definitely see it there though. I think with the graduate, one of the great things about it is that you have a character uh, at the end who is acting very individualistically and is, and is, uh, you know, running after the thing that he wants and then he gets it. And granted, this is a function of the filmmaker, less than the, less the screenplay itself, mm. but uh, Benjamin Braddock, you know, gets what he, what he wants. And now what? Like the, yeah. one thing that I, that I like about the graduate that I don't think I understood when I was younger is that it has plenty of criticism all around, like just finding all kinds of hypocrisy uh, in official institutions and unofficial institutions, which is to say like, you know, uh, the upper class is not an organized institution, but it might as well be. And he certainly has no, no patience for that either. Uh, and I view the, the graduate as a remarkably cynical film all around um, because you have just these characters behaving in a certain way, whether it be mm -hmm. because they're expected to by society or they want to do it their own way, they behave a certain way and nothing really, nothing really good comes out of it. Um, and, uh, and certainly the next film on the next film for me, uh, which is admittedly 1970, I didn't see. Oh no, I've, I've seen candy. So we just talked candy? about candy okay. um, and candy again, you've got, Candy, the individual who takes a tour 
of it's uh, and again this is him adapting a novel that was i guess uh successful at the time i i'd never heard of it but um yeah, the the but the the main character her name is candy she's a high school girl played by eva Aulin, and um she is uh i th- i think the movie is aware of the fact that she is essentially a character without agency she's an audience sort of surrogate that just gets shuffled from one institution to another she starts at uh at 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 school where um oh yeah and the cast for candy is great i don't don't even look it up tyler because i'm gonna run okay okay uh because because each sort of um institution she she cycles through is uh sort of headed by another famous male actor so her teacher slash father at school is john astin hey Um, all right and and then she meets a sort of guru not guru because that comes later but uh like a uh playboy type novelist played by richard burton mm. uh then she gets seduced by her gardener played by ringo Starr, doing a mexican accent that is very problematic um uh and then not the least this- of which i'm going to assume he's just not good at it as well <laughs> yeah um uh, yeah and then from there i i can't even remember the plot sort of how the plot gets her from place to place. Then she gets involved. She gets picked up by uh, an army platoon headed by Walter Matthau. She goes to a um, uh, hospital where the doctors are James Coburn and John Houston. Um, and then, uh, oh, and one of the nurses is Anita Pallenberg. And uh, after cycling through a few more things, there's like this magic guy who has a hat. Uh, she ends up uh, under the... <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, under the thrall of a traveling new age guru played by Marlon Brando. Um, wow. in a fantastically like go for broke, uh, comedic performance by Marlon Brando. Um, and there's, you know, this, the, the distrust of these people, you know, one of the things that I think that Buck Henry uses to show the sort of corruption in all of these institutions is that this is a very beautiful young woman and all of these men for all of the power uh, they have and all the things they're in charge of repeatedly just continue to just completely fall apart in her presence because of her, because of their attraction to her there. They, they go dumb every time. And well, some of them, Walter Matthau in particular is dumb to begin with, but uh, <laughs> they, but they lose the ability to think uh, in the presence of, of, of this young woman. And uh, yeah, the Marlon Brando character, there's like, they're, he's like, yeah, he's this new age guru. They're fasting. And then it cuts to a shot of like, she's asleep and he's sitting on the edge of bed, <laughs> drinking a beer and eating just a, an enormous sausage. Like the kind you would see, like hanging in the window of a butcher shop, like just a huge sausage that he's just like, biting huge chunks directly out of while she's while she's sleeping uh there's a lot yeah there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of very clever uh funny exchanges but like i said he's also a gag man and sometimes he just like goes for it um yeah uh yeah and then there's some uh there's a culmination that that sort of reminds me of the end of hair which and in a way, this actually does remind me of um, a more cynical Milos Forman movie. We talked about hmm. Milos Forman almost exactly a year ago, I think, right? No, maybe oh a, little, a little over a year ago, we did a Milos Forman uh, profile. Um, All of our episodes just blend together at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Candy is uh, a, a lot of fun. Like a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about 
today. Yeah. You know, I mentioned, I mentioned Ringo Starr's Mexican accent. Like there's a lot of stuff we're going to get to today that uh, is problematic by today's sure. standards. Um, and you can argue to what, what extent is he shining a light on hypocrisy of racism and sexism and to what extent is this stuff just racist or sexist we'll get to that more later um but uh yeah uh continuing in full-on cynical mode i think we're going to talk about 1970s um catch 22 correct yes uh, re-teamed him with mike nichols and not for the last time either not for the last time and not for the weirdest time um which we'll get to in a minute but uh yeah um so have you read the the book catch 22 uh yeah i have okay yes uh, as have i um and although for me it's been a while since i've read the book but uh yeah and i realize that we're not here to talk about the movies in general but uh it's tough i i do find myself wondering if it's if it's possible to capture the t- just the just the the acidic tone of that book. And I think that this movie does a pretty good job. I know that there was, there was a mini series like for Hulu that I think George Clooney made. Um, yeah, I didn't that, uh, I didn't watch that. I'm not as, fa- I'm not as big a fan as this movie of this movie as you are. I don't think it does that good a job of capturing. I, d- I don't the, think it does that great a job. I, th- yeah, I think it does. I think it's a, it does a fraction of what the film uh, of what the book does. Um, and, uh, but by all accounts, the, the, the Hulu thing, uh, is, is even more, is even safer. Um, I do think that there is a bit of an edge to catch 22, the movie, um, nowhere near as sharp as the edge of the, of the book, but, uh, but I still, I still think it's, it's pretty good. And I do think a lot of it could be the, the cast itself, but I think as far as adaptations go, you probably could do a more faithful adaptation, but, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say a lot of, a lot of his, uh, a lot of Buck Henry scripts are adaptations. And, uh, mm-hmm. this is the only one where I'm, I'm familiar with the source material. Um, and yeah, that is to the film's detriment, too. unfortunately. Yeah. I, I don't know how much I blame Buck Henry for the things I don't like about Cash 22. I tend to blame as much as I like him when he's making a movie that I like, I tend to blame Mike Nichols a little bit because sure. I think he has, because I think, what Catch-22, the novel, Joseph Heller's novel has, what Joseph Heller has is this perfect blend of the, yeah, cynical, absurdist, anarchic streak, and also an anger that comes from a deeply human and deeply sad place. Mm-hmm. And I think Mike Nichols doesn't have the second half as much. I think Mike Nichols, who is also a comedian, has that comedian's detachment sometimes from the material. And, and yeah. so I don't think uh, one of the things about Dead's Catch-22, one of the things that, sorry, I'm still getting used to this way of recording um, with, the, with yeah. the earbuds in my ears. That I, uh, it's weird. Um, I can't really hear myself, so I keep stuffing stuff on, on my own words. Um, the experience of reading Catch-22 is to be like howling with laughter and then wiping away tears, but not in like a maudlin way. Like it's, it's not manipulative. It's it, it, the, it, it comes from a place that's so r- real and raw. Um, and I just don't think that the movie version has that. Yeah. Um, 
there are a couple moments I think uh, from Alan uh, Arkin, uh, Ar- pardon me, Alan Arkin's character. Um, there are a couple moments there, and then there are a couple moments like uh, when I don't remember the name of any of the characters, but uh, Charles Grodin's character is responsible for something pretty terrible. And he's like huddled in the corner, like moments where you do see some raw emotion as the characters themselves seem to be responding to these absurd circumstances emotionally um, Mm -hmm. as opposed to purely intellectually. Um, And I do, I I think I, I, I approach Buck Henry as a writer I do think that he's probably more, you know, I talked about a certain dryness and I would say that comes with a, with having a, an intellectual understanding of, of what's going on. But I do think he infuses it with emotion. And then I think somebody like a Mike Nichols who, yeah, he's made some really wonderful films um, and has shown that he is able to capture emotion, but he doesn't seem to really understand what to do with it. Uh, whereas I think the, the potential is there in Buck Henry's uh, screenplay. And uh, yeah, I, I do think that there are flashes of what catch 22 uh, could be, but at the same time, I'm, I'm also, I think of the movie and the book but certainly more the movie is being a little bit more for lack of a better term, just mean spirited, which is fine with me. Um, but uh, give you know, when, when something is as satirical as that, you almost have to be mean spirited, but I feel like there does need to be in even the best satires, there needs to be just a, at least a kernel of genuine humanity. You know, like if you look at network, you see some relational stuff that rings true. Maybe not so much something like Dr. Strangelove, but, uh, but yeah, catch 22. It just, it always seems like it's right on the cusp of doing something mm-hmm. pretty amazing as a film. There are individual scenes, individual performances that I think work really well, but I don't think it ever fully comes together as a film. But once again, you have the the individual being ill-served by the institution. Sure. Uh, Very much so. Um, Well, uh, speaking of Buck Henry's potential conservatism, what better way to display your conservatism than a throwback, right? The weren't things better back then type of uh, (laughs) (laughs) way. What's Up Doc, which is... uh, pretty much a perfect movie in 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 my point it's one uh, one of the perfect movies it it, in a way like it's 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 very smart in the way that it's very clever but it it sort of throws out the 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 i don't know societal introspection or whatever uh or or analysis of of the of some of these other movies we've seen and it's just a almost going back to his tv days it's a it's a joke and gag machine yeah Um, and And you and i watched this together uh for the first time uh, at least for me many many years ago and uh we laughed quite a bit yes just the the there there's an almost uh uh there's an audacity to the film that it's just willing to be exactly what it is, which, you know, given the time period, uh, it's like, Oh, well, we'll have a, this certainly happened with Westerns and film uh, films noir and that sort of thing. Like we'll have a throwback, but we're going to use that to sort of comment on the past and the present. What's up doc. It's like, ah, go fuck yourself. We're going to just have a lot of fun. And sure enough, uh, they do. It's, it's a very fun movie. Uh, yeah. And, um, I think there's a 
you could you could argue both sides when it comes to Buck Henry in terms of how he writes uh, the female characters. I think Barbara Streisand's character. I think Barbara Streisand is very well served by the screenplay here, and the movie is also very well served by Barbara Streisand. It's uh, it's yeah. a it's a terrific performance. There there are some other ones. Uh, yeah, we'll get into some more problematic stuff. Like I mentioned, I mean, Candy already was uh, turning its you know that's. Uh, namesake lead into a nothing but a sex object that things happen to for the entire movie. Um, there's obviously there's a weakened quality to that, but uh, you'll see that sort of thing uh, come up in his movies uh, sometimes with, with women. Yeah. And you know, this is a, a film that is just, you know, when you're dealing with this type of fi- of movie, I mean, all of his films have a lot of dialogue, but hey, you got to cram as much dialogue as you can into a, a one minute space or whatever, because uh, everything is just so fast. Yeah. So I was, it, it being a while since I've seen it, uh, I was scrolling through uh, just some of the IMDb memorable quotes. Okay. And, and of course, it's all coming back to me now. And so like uh, the the courtroom sequence and that judge is just like my favorite thing in the world, judge Maxwell. And so there's, there's a moment again, I'm looking here at the, at the, this is just such a get smart type of interaction, but also I could see it being in the graduate as well in its own way. Uh, so uh, the judge is talking to a guy and the, and he's going to make the, he's going to sick the bailiff on him. And the, the guy says, don't touch me. I'm a doctor. And the judge says of what? And he says, music. He goes, can you fix a hi-fi? No, sir. Then shut up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's <just such> a <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, yeah. So let's, um, let's move on to 1973's the day of the dolphin, another Mike Nichols Boy. movie, uh, yeah. which I watched just the other night and kind of fell in love with a little bit. <laughs> It's such an it's a very odd movie in that it's I wonder I also wonder if it played more as a comedy at the time. I don't know because It's hard to say. It's pretty it's pretty straight-faced. Yeah, it definitely stays very very straight-faced. Um and 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 yeah, George C. Scott is 100% committed to this role of guy, a guy who's teaching dolphins to talk, to speak English. Yeah. Um, and he can play, you know, he can play comedy, oh yeah. uh, obviously. Uh, and even like, even in something like uh, the hospital, you know, um, he had been in uh, a Patty Chayefsky thing playing like the absurdity, but also the inherent tragedy of a character. But here it's just like, all right, I'm, it's, it's almost, God help me. It's almost touching how committed he is yeah. to this relationship. His character has, he's infinitely closer with that dolphin than he is with his wife, like <laughs> by yeah, a wide I, margin. Speaking of uh, it's yet yeah, um, Trish van Trish van Devere is the mm. actress, but yeah, speaking of a female, essentially like the, essentially the leading female character of the movie has, she has nothing to do. There's just the movie. nothing for her to do. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you've got uh, young uh, Paul Sorvino. Yeah, um, who's really good in it, I think. He is really good playing him. I can't remember his character. Well, I'm looking it up. Curtis Mahoney. Yeah, very there Irish you. name. I remember, thinking, yeah. I remember thinking when he said his name, I was like, that's very Irish for Paul Sorvino. <laughs> yeah, my first thought was, I was like, don't trust him. He's obviously <laughs> lying to you. <laughs> uh, you've also got Edward Herman, um, mm-hmm. who uh, uh, he, I don't know, what, what, this is a small moment. And I just watched this the other night, so you probably don't remember this. But uh, Edward Herman is 
he's the guy who pilots the boat that takes that goes to yeah. and from their island yeah. uh, research facility. And when he's bringing Paul Servino, the journalist out there, and Paul Servino is asking him questions, Edward Herman is like hilariously noncommittal to anything. Yeah, because and then Paul Servino goes, I, "I like I'm guessing you were told." to tell me as little as possible but he's like uh he's like so how long would this boat ride boat ride take oh another 30 minutes maybe 45 an hour (laughs) (laughs) he's like uh and how often do you make this trip back and forth oh now and then Uh, (laughs) and it's just yeah it's a very funny uh exchange but yeah the the movie is conceptually if i described the plot to you that george c scott is a scientist who is teaching dolphins to speak English and then some shadowy powers that be decide to use those dolphins to try and commit a political assassination. That sounds like a satire and it kind of is, but like, like you said, the movie plays its card. It's, it plays it close to the vest as it were. It, it, it seems real the whole time, even as it's ridiculous. And that's part of what I loved about it. I remember uh, many years ago, I was hanging out with some friends and we, and I don't remember how we stumbled on this, but we were looking at, uh, uh, I think like really, really bad uh, taglines uh, for movies. And on the old poster of Day of the Dolphin, the tagline is, unwittingly, he trained a dolphin to kill the president of the United States. <laughs> And there's a picture of a very serious George C. Scott. Uh, and then we looked at it and it said a Mike Nichols film. It's like, what the hell? And then we saw that it was written by Buck Henry. It's like, what is going on? Yeah. Like this, it feels like the, those two guys like made a bet. I know that's such an, you know, not necessarily lost a bet. They made a bet. Uh-huh. I'll bet we can make this thing. And apparently the book was, it was fairly popular, but of course something in a book it's up to your imagination. When you make it into yeah. a movie, you need to yeah. visualize it. And more specifically, you need to make spoilers. Everybody, when that dolphin speaks English yeah, or you know what? Any human tongue, uh, they, it sounds about as convincing as it can. Yeah. Uh, the film was nominated for best sound and understandably so. Um, <laughs> but uh, along with best uh, score and it's just such a strange film and one that like I still occasionally found myself getting pulled into probably because of George C. Scott's commitment, but then the inherent absurdity of it all, the silliness of it all pulled me out. And that's when I was like, is this meant to be funny? Is this meant to be just the driest going back to that word, just the driest comedy. So dry, ironically, because of course a lot of it's in the ocean, but like, right. <laughs> uh, you know, so dry that you can't even really tell how silly the, the writer and director consider it. Yeah. It's, it's a like, very... a, it's like a Tim Heidecker bit in some ways. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's not that it's full of jokes. It's the joke is that we're doing this. Yes. In yes. a sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, but like I said, it does have some uh, laughs. The scene I mentioned, there's also, and I, this one would be a spoiler for me to exactly to tell you exactly, but there's the the actor, uh, character actor John Corcus or Corks. Okay. I don't know. Uh, uh, he plays one of George C. Scott's crew of scientists who ends up playing a more important role as the movie goes on. Oh, yes, yes. If you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, his, <laughs> uh, I think it's the last line that he has in the movie is just, 
oh shit uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's not like an oh shit it's just like uh oh shit yeah. uh, and then that's the last one of the, uh, you never hear from him again um well, and that's, then that's I, a, that was a big laugh for me and i also noticed that uh there is a uh, there is a character that looked familiar to me but i couldn't place him and that's when i realized he was severn darden who was like an old school uh uh second city guy um okay who and and mike nichols came out of second city and i think buck henry might have as well and so like the idea that you do have some comedic actors in here um suggests that maybe they did not maybe they had to have known about the ridiculousness ridiculousness of the whole thing um and just are again playing a very straight faced but i don't know it's i i would love to i would love to to have spoken to Buck Henry and said like, what's going on here, man? Uh, this is very, uh, this is all very strange. Although from a dialogue standpoint, you know, I, I remember really liking the first, uh, the first section of the film, like with like George C. Scott giving a lecture. I like everything that oh, Paul yeah. Sorvino's character says and, and does like, there's a lot of stuff in there that if it weren't for the inherent, again, silliness of everything yeah, I would really like a lot of the a lot of I, the uh, I do execution. Like I do like the movie. I I honestly like. I felt for those dolphins. I believe sure. that George C. Scott loved those dolphins. Um, uh, and there's a lot of great. Uh, I, I I I guess knowing what I know now about uh, animal performers, I don't know what they yeah. have to do to these dolphins to get these performances out of them. Yeah. Uh, but there's uh, a lot of great dolphin footage, but uh, I am worried that they got, I don't know, like shocked or whipped or something. You know, the fact that I, I think that it's possible that Mike Nichols and Buck Henry didn't exactly know how to play this. And I think that is the fact that this, that the pace is so sluggish <laughs> Um, I think, I think that's an indicator because like, you know, for a film like this, which after a certain point, there is a suspense element to it. And yet at no point do I feel any level of suspense. Like I feel like when a director has a strong idea of what it is they want to do, uh, there is like a, a very clear drive, especially if it's something that is meant to be suspenseful. And here it, everything is just so, it's just so lackluster. Um, well, until finally, like when that moment, when the, uh, when the, Oh shit moment comes along, uh, it's like, yeah, that tone's about right. That's, that's the level that we're operating at. Uh, but yeah, well, because it's such a, it's such a mystery of a film. That's, I almost felt like the whole thing, the whole political assassination part of it, the movie is an hour and 44 minutes. I feel like mm -hmm. there's like 80 minutes of movie before that actually oh, like, yes. starts. It, it, it really is just the very end of the movie. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. There's all this stuff about him introducing a second dolphin, you know, and the relationship yeah. between the male dolphin and the female dolphin. Like there's so much stuff that isn't about, uh, about that, but it makes you care about, I don't know. made me at least care about the dolphins more. And to, to play into what you've been talking about, which is the idea of, of suspicion. I mean, George C. Scott's character is extremely suspicious oh, yeah. of everybody, you know, yeah. not merely of like, he's suspicious of like every institution because he realizes that something like this uh, could 
shake the world to its core. It, it shook me, that's for sure. Uh, but yeah, so it definitely fits in tonally with what you've been talking about. Uh, and then, yeah, I said I'd mention the nude bomb. It's just Buck Henry only has a credit because he created co-created the character right. of, of, of Maxwell Smart. Uh, the nude bomb is not bad. If you're a Get Smart fan, it has plenty of Get Smart stuff in it. It also feels very uh, thrown together in, 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 in some ways. Have you seen I, the nude bomb? I saw it when I was younger, actually, okay. uh, having because I was a fan of Get Smart. And I remember, again, I wouldn't have been able to phrase it this way, but I uh, definitely thought it dragged and uh, felt like, oh, yeah, there's a reason that this show was a half hour. Yeah, but there's, I mean, there's set pieces that work. Of course. Um, if you want to hear Maxwell Smart say words like shit and ass, which you can't hear on the show, <laughs> uh, that happens. There's also no Barbara Feldon, which is weird. Hmm. Um, because then when Get Smart came, when they did another made-for-TV movie, because this was 1980, there's another made-for-TV movie in 89. I looked this up this morning. Uh, Barbara Feldon was in that. And then do you remember the 1995 Get Smart Again, the very, the very short-lived sitcom? No. In which... Maxwell Smart had become the head of control and then his son played by Andy Dick was the new like agent. (laughs) Um, Okay. So that's the nude bomb, but also in 1980, the only writer director credit uh, for Buck Henry, which is first family. Yeah. Have you seen this? I haven't. I, uh, I was, I was, uh, very curious about it because he directed it. Uh, I saw some, uh, pretty horrendous reviews of it. Um, and, uh, despite, uh, you know, once again, good cast. I was, I was going to say, if you weren't, hadn't looked it up, you've got the, the first family in question, uh, the fictional, uh, uh, first family bob newhart is the president madeline khan is the first lady and gilda radner is their daughter so right there off the bat yeah you've got a great uh trio then you've got uh richard benjamin harvey corman uh austin pendleton rip torn fred willard it's a it's a fantastic cast yeah um the movie is also i think um very very funny and i'm uh, so I was surprised to find the reviews were as bad uh, as they were, but maybe I kind of understand because it's also uh, very weird at times. Yeah. Um, but it also, I think it kind of, I mean, there's stuff that it's like on, you could say it certainly doesn't age well. Um, sure. And I do think like, I want to give it a pass because like definitely the white characters, Bob Newhart and Mike Battlecon, especially as like the sort of like um, the white people who think they're good people, but are actually racist and re- and really patronizing. Like they're clearly the butt of the joke too. Right. But some of the depictions of Africans in this movie are just, they go beyond problematic. Like it's just fucking racist. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, even if it gets like to some good, like, buck henry type of like gags there's when the um the president and the ambassador of this uh, fictional african nation meet the military band is playing i can't remember if they're playing our national anthem or playing hill hill to the chief or whatever and then they like all set down their like trombones and stuff and then pick up like you know drums and start playing <laughs> the African national anthem. Um, <laughs> not, I mean, the, the national anthem of this fictional African nation. Right. Um, it's, uh, 
it's cringe it's cringe inducing it's also a fu- it's a funny gag just visually yeah. uh, on its own to have them like these military american military men suddenly holding like uh conga drums and stuff like that um uh and then yeah when they go to the when they when they visit when the president visits this country the airport is just a hut like there's all kinds of like yeah uh, really un- uncomfortable stuff and it's too bad because there's um there's also lots and lots of very funny stuff um including the stuff i was talking about like poking fun at the at the at how uncomfortable these uh white people are around black people and that's actually a specific line in the movie he's like uh uh <laughs> bob newhart is saying to his press agent which is richard benjamin uh something like uh we want to give the impression to the American people that we're uh, that we're we're not afraid to have a bunch of black people running around the White House. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's really uncomfortable, uh, and that's the word that Richard Benjamin uses. Is like you want them to think you're comfortable. And he's like, yeah, exactly. Um, and then Madeline Kahn has a whole part where she's talking to one of the heads of state of this fictional nation about how. Um, there aren't very many black people in the white house, but when they're out, when they are, they're always very well-dressed and presentable. <laughs> it's like, it's really uncomfortable stuff. Uh, very, also very funny. And then some of it is just like ludicrously funny. Like, yeah. uh, Gil Radner's character is a, um, virgin, but not by choice. She very desperately wants to have sex with every man that she meets <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> um, and and can't see quite seem to to make it happen um so that's funny there's also a great gag or just uh, a great visual gag um uh I don't think gag is even the right word gag sort of implies something that's like done it's it's a whole set piece where they're having some sort of themed party at the White House where everyone is dressed as an like it's a costume party. Everyone is dressed as like a national holiday. And then they have to have meet in the Oval Office for a last minute, like serious meeting about whether or not to go make a diplomatic visit to this African nation. And um, so you've got a bunch of guys like dressed as like a turkey or a Christmas tree or a jack-o'-lantern. And the Christmas tree is funny because every time he moves, like the ornaments all like <laughs> jingle on him. Like, and um and bob newhart is dressed as as uh like george washington um and, and it's a very serious conversation they're having uh, uh yeah uh, all, all in these ridiculous costumes um and yeah the i also the place where it ends up t- t- talk about weird with the day of the dolphin i almost don't want to don't i don't want to give away where um first family ends up going because it's uh it's big like climactic set piece is so not it's so not a what's up doc type of like there's not a food fight it's bob newhart's character making uh giving an address to the nation that is he's feeling it very deeply but not making any sense whatsoever and it's like hilarious he's talking about like he has a whole thing. He's like, when you're little, everything seems big. The furniture and the buildings and women's breasts. <laughs> and, <laughs> and like, it's this like 
he's it's it's very emotional but also completely absurd and nonsensical yeah. at the same time it's it's in a weird way it's almost like an anti-climax hmm. um until like a car drives through and flips over so there it does have that big madcap <laughs> moment but um uh i guess i can't understand why people would be turned off by it at the time because it was it was weird and i understand why people would be rightfully turned off by it now because it's so uh racist um but uh there's a lot of truly funny stuff in it um one thing i wanted to mention real quick uh, because he did direct first family uh that was the that's the last feature that he directed he had direct two years before he had directed heaven can wait didn't write it oh directed it what was that? He co-directed it. Co-directed it. Yes, yes, yes. With but, Warren Beatty, um, right? Yeah. And he's in but, it. Yes. But, yeah. uh, but it's it's just very interesting to me that, like, he was, uh, you know, not to boil everything down to Oscars, but, like, he was he was nominated for Best Director for Heaven Can Wait and then made First Family and uh, The End. He directed one episode in 1989 of a show called Trying Times, and that was it. Huh. Yeah, uh, I mean, and, it, might, it might be just the fact that, like, first family was probably a huge bomb and sure yeah the the one time he gets to go out on his own and make his i mean this is a buck henry film he's writer and director um and i guess with a cast like that like if it was gonna work it was gonna work uh you know and and one thing that so a lot of the movies that we'll be getting to are films that i i didn't see because i heard really bad things about and so i do find it interesting uh that like you know he wrote the graduate he wrote what's up doc like uh candy like he's made some movie he's written some movies that are really great and we're gonna get we're gonna get to another really great one in a moment but he has also made films that are often considered like i was looking up i said like oh first family was nominated for some awards what could they possibly be and uh there was uh, the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. Uh, it was nominated for Most Painfully Unfunny Comedy and Most Intrusive Musical Score. And uh, those, are, those are the only nominees. And so it's just fascinating. And then I know that we'll get to a movie in a minute that I think uh, is considered like a, a huge bomb. Uh, and is it up right. for, yeah, it's nominated for, it was nominated for a few Razzies. Um, it's just very interesting that like as a writer, he is responsible for some like really amazing films and maybe some of the worst movies. And I guess that comes down to like, when you think about it with his type of comedy and his dry wit, um, if you get the wrong director in there or something like that, uh, they, and they don't really know what to do with it. Uh, and in this case, he's his own director, so who knows? But it could just be that, like, when you have that sense of humor, either it's really going to work or it's really not. Uh, well, one that works is, I think, a sort of uh, undiscovered gem, I think, in his uh, filmography is 1984's Protocol, directed mm-hmm. by Herbert Ross, which I also watched uh, recently. Um, and uh, this is the opposite of the problem with the, that I mentioned with some other movies. Like, you've got a female lead who's a great, well-rounded character, Um and uh, obviously Goldie Hawn uh, in her prime, it, this is 1984. Goldie Hawn is very much in her prime. She brings uh, a lot to, to the performance uh, where she is. Uh, she plays a Washington DC cocktail waitress, like nightclub cocktail waitress who sort of 
inadvertently saves a visiting dignitary's life from an assassination mm. and gets uh, shot in the ass uh, in, in, <laughs> in the process. And um, basically uh, the state department gives her a job in the, uh, on the protocol uh, team ostensibly as like a thank you for your heroic thing, but also because they want to uh, convince that dignitary's country to let them build a military base there. So once again, you've got the 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 big institution, the government institution, taking advantage of uh, a well-meaning uh, I- individual. Um, but the the movie is um, the movie is a ton of fun. You've got uh, Chris Sarandon as the one uh, mm. the one guy in the State Department who has a heart and actually like sees uh stunny goldie hans character for who she is and of course there's a little bit of a of a, of a romance uh there you've got the uh the arab characters are not played by arabs the <laughs> the leader of the country is played by richard Gromanus, who i had to look up but he's melfi's dr melfi's ex-husband on the sopranos if you remember oh, okay yeah yeah uh, and then his sort of right-hand man who turns out to be like a party animal and is also good friends with sunny is played by andre gregory <laughs> of all people um yeah you've got uh gail strickland ed begley jr kenneth mars is in it gene smart uh is in it um yeah kenneth mcmillan if you know who that is um oh kathleen york i don't remember seeing her in the movie but she's in it i never know how um, you say the guy's last name but keith zara yes keith zara Baika. um yeah what do you you and i know i know you're a big you know a lot of voice actors. So is that how you know him, his name? I mean, I know him from a few things. I know that he was in, uh, he played a notable role in The Dark Knight. He's, he's done a lot of uh, audio books um, yeah, that, yeah, I have, that I've listened to. Yeah, that's the big thing with Keith Zarabika, if that's how you say his name, is yeah. uh, voice acting and, and audiobooks. But he was also uh, a very memorable character on Angel, which I know you didn't watch, but that's oh, right. what I always... Uh, what I always think of uh, when I see, see him or see his name. Yeah. So it's a, a, a very fun movie. Herbert Ross is a much more grounded director uh, for this sort of, it's, it's a more grounded movie than first family, obviously. And Herbert Ross is a more grounded director. Um, and it does feel, it does play like a, if something like, I can't help but compare first family and protocol because they're both DC set political comedies. Mm-hmm. They're both Buck Henry movies, obviously. And they came out, uh, four years, only four years apart. But, um, uh, I would say that there's a, there's a lot of great, there's a, there's some good Buck Henry stuff in protocol, but I think it, if you had to boil down authorship, I think of it, I, I, I would say it feels like a Goldie Hawn vehicle first. And that's not, sure. a, that's not a complaint uh, because like I mentioned, this is Goldie Hawn under prime and I'm a big fan of Goldie Hawn uh, at, at any age. Um, and there are things she brings to, you talked about the end of the graduate being something that wouldn't be in the screenplay. There's the scene where she's getting the bullet removed from her ass and mm-hmm. is getting her ass sewed up the look on her <laughs> face and just the way she like does little things like moves her feet while she's on the operating table are hilarious. Yeah. Um, and, and that's uh, that's just something that only Goldie Hawn could have brought. Well, and it definitely sounds like in a way it was only a matter of time before she acted in a, in a Buck Henry penned uh, screenplay uh, because a uh, film, because uh, she was kind of seen as like, 
this maybe not rugged, but an individualist who like does things her own way and winds up pissing off the, the authority figures uh, who are often, if not bumbling at, at the very least unreliable and certainly unflexible and, and they're unable to like see things her way. You know, the kind of movie that a Polly Shore would be in uh, a few years later. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's not too far off. Um, I feel bad right. now that I said that. So then we've got a huge gap, mm-hmm. other than other than one episode uh, of um, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I guess they did an '80s version of that. I don't even remember that. Uh, I do remember a short, yeah, a short-lived. So he did one of those in '85, and then for ten years, there's nothing, and then there's To Die For, which yes, I which I just did. watched for the first time. I'm glad because I haven't seen it since I was probably in high school. Um, so maybe you can speak to it more. But again, like with Candy or, or Protocol, you've got a not particularly bright woman who uh, uh, gets caught up in something bigger than herself. But I would say takes more. She takes more. Uh, uh, I don't know. She. Ta- I, Sonny in Protocol also ends up taking initiative, but in a very positive way. Uh, this yeah, character I takes some initiative in a different direction. Yeah, I wouldn't say she gets caught up in something. She basically initiates something. Um, and but, but what I mean is she gets she's caught also up not... in... Because she has very, I think... She has very low-level ambitions in term, at the beginning. And so I yes. think you could argue is viewing this through the lens of a Buck Henry movie that this is more of that the, the thing that she gets started, the negative thing that she gets started, which is we, we can say she uh, uh, arranges for teenagers to kill her husband. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, comes from her being sort of uh, poisoned or infected or corrupted by the world of the media. Yeah. And, you know, an argument could also be made uh, given what we're talking about. And I don't know if I totally uh, agree with what I'm about to say, but I'm putting it out there that uh, I wouldn't say the movie is anti-feminist, but it definitely, I feel like it could fall. It it definitely fits into what people uh, fear uh, or maybe what people did fear about feminism. The idea that like, she now is just, she's just pure ambition and her husband who is limited in his thinking, but he is, he's quite doting, you know, like he is not, mm-hmm. uh, he's not like this abusive clod. He, de- he definitely like in his mind, he wants to have a family and all of that. And he, you know, he has a, a very limited vision of, for himself. And as a result, he has a limited uh, vision of her. So, uh, but he's not a bad person at all. Like when she does her, her weather uh, forecasts, he tunes in every time and he's really excited about it. And so like, uh, but she's like, no, I'm not going to have a family. It'll get in the way of what I want to do. Uh, and instead I will get, you know, whoever gets in the way of what I, uh, of my goals, I will either use them or just dis- uh, dispose of them. And so, uh, you know, it could be seen as like, yeah, this is what happens when, uh, when you give, uh, give women a little bit of, uh, a little bit of a taste of uh, professional success. Um, I don't think that, I don't think that's necessarily what the film is doing because I think, uh, 
tonally, and this has a lot to do with Gus Van Sant, like tonally, everything is so ratcheted up um, and heightened that I think it is meant, it's very much meant to be tongue in cheek. And the fact that this character, Suzanne, she's not very bright, but she's bright enough in just the right ways um, to, Mm. to, manipulate and get what she wants out of people. Uh, and yes, the film is absolutely, uh, uh, it's absolutely cynical about the media and just saying like, it's this machine that, um, that creates narcissists. And of course the nature of narcissism is like, it is my way and that is all. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is how she behaves. And, so it definitely fits in with what you're saying. Um, I going in, I, I had a feeling I would like it a lot. I just, I had heard really good things about it and sure enough, I really loved it. Uh, great cast all around. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. not including only do you have Buck Henry, what was that? Including, yes, Buck including, Henry. but Oh, and he's, he's not in it much, but he is delightful, uh, in it as, uh, this again, because of who he is, uh, he just often plays like dorks. Uh, but uh, here he is still that, but he has this deep, this deep well of rage uh, against his students. And, uh, and it's hilarious uh, to, to watch. Um, but yeah, you've got really great performances, you know, uh, by Joaquin Phoenix and Casey Affleck and the always reliable Ileana Douglas, um, Dan Hedaya, Kurtwood Smith. Are you shitting me? Uh, you've got Wayne Knight and uh, we see, I don't know if he's uncredited, but George Siegel is in there. And so uh, stylistically, it feels very nineties. Um, I, I do think that the choice to, on the part of Gus Van Sant to use uh uh, Danny Elfman as the composer who then incorporates a lot of like, uh, like punk music and like heavy metal sounding music, um, uh, is interesting, but yeah, it definitely, if we're, if we're looking at, at, uh, Buck Henry as the guy who is suspicious of institutions, this, this one definitely fits, but I think maybe not unlike the graduate, albeit in a, in a slightly different way, you know, we do have a character who is a rugged individualist and we see what that does to other people. Uh, you know, for her, it's, you know, what is the nature of, of American individualism? If it's not like pursue your dreams and if you believe in yourself, you can accomplish anything. And that is definitely what she believes. And the world is all the worse for it. So this, this one definitely seems to have plenty of condemnation to go around. Uh, not just with the media. And again, what I'm saying about like how it could be viewed that like, this is somebody's nightmare of what feminism could, could have been uh, and that sort of thing. But uh, well, I don't know, get that potential conservatism on his part again. Yeah. But I, but I think it's, this is, well, you know what? I mean, maybe in the same way as like uh, first family on one hand, it seems to be satirizing a certain view while also maybe indulging it. Uh, So it's, it's hard to say, but, uh, but yeah, I really, I really liked it. And I do think that there are, there are characters that we do have a heart for. Um, I don't, what is the name of this? Uh, I don't remember Alison Foland who plays, uh, Lydia, who's like one of the three teenagers. Uh, and she seems to be the one, and we feel a certain degree of sympathy towards Joaquin Phoenix and Matt Damon, uh, Matt, Matt Dillon, pardon me. Um, but, uh, Alison Foland, like her character is the one who, yeah, she's a little bit, dumb like everybody else but uh 
but she does seem to have real feelings and, uh, and we do uh, sort of feel for her uh, as well. But, um, but yeah, this is a, de- this is a very, very deeply cynical film. Um, and uh, looking at, you know, finding the theme that you're talking about, like it definitely fits. It's also, unfortunately, the last uh, great movie on <laughs> that he, uh, that he wrote. Uh, yeah. This is, mean, the, this is the last one that I've seen. Not that there are that many afterwards. Okay, but... Well, there's a couple more that I've seen, including, I mean, speaking of great casts, how could you go wrong with Warren Beatty, Diane Keaton, Goldie Hawn again, and Gary Shandling, plus Natasha Kinski, uh, Josh Hartnett, uh, Charlton Heston's in here. Yeah. Uh, uh, what, a, what a great uh, Andy McDowell's in it. I mean, how could you go wrong uh, except for make one of the most notorious box office bombs of all time? Yeah. Because you've got this uh, relationship comedy that somehow cost, it was like a $100 million movie somehow, uh, got repeatedly delayed and recut. It's called Town and Country. I can't remember if I said that or not. Um, right. And uh, when it finally came out in 2001, everyone hated it. Uh, I maybe I, maybe I it, like the hatred had been uh, overblown for me. I remember watching it and thinking, just from a Buck Henry like screenwriting point of view, like, oh, there's a lot of funny stuff in this. Like, sure. I remember laughing plenty at at, at Town and Country. Um, it does seem indulgent and expensive uh with, with these these big big name stars and, and their personalities but uh i can't I, honestly i can't tell you i can't say that i remember that much uh, uh, uh about the the story i know charlton huston uh, uh has a gun at one point um i don't know if that was like in his contract uh, <laughs> <laughs> well from what i heard like his care again this is one that i steered clear of but you know what it's 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 one of those things that um so looking at it uh as far as so it won worst supporting actor for charlton heston and it was nominated for worst supporting actress and worst director by the razzies and then uh, apparently the stinkers bad movie awards are still around or at oh, least really? they were in 2001 because it was it was not it was nominated for most painfully unfunny comedy wow. uh, worst picture and worst sense of direction uh and so um but one thing that i that i wanted to mention is that uh you know when i i'm often frustrated by the razzies because there tends to be a piling on aspect and so like if a movie has a a high budget and it bombs that seems to get the movie on the razzies radar and they wind up just saying like oh this movie was so terrible it's like uh maybe maybe not but it it bombed but that doesn't necessarily mean a movie is bad yeah um, razzie seemed like something you could predict without having seen any of the movies oh no question yeah uh but unfortunately town and country is not the worst movie that buck henry wrote that would be unfortunately his final one barry levinson's the humbling oh it, i was really that one i was actually interested to to see no, uh just because just i'm interested clear. in i'm interested in late period uh al pacino and I guess he's he's good, but I think you've once again I think got a director who's out of step. Barry Levinson has made funny movies before. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't I feel like at some point Barry Levinson, I, maybe he didn't get the memo that this was a comedy. I think sure he treats it way too seriously. It's about uh, Al Pacino plays uh, an aging actor um, who's uh, has like a mental breakdown while he's doing uh, Shakespeare's doing as you like it. And so uh, retreats to his 
expensive home in in Connecticut and then starts up a relationship with the now grown daughter of his friends. Uh, the daughter is played by Greta Gerwig. Excuse me. Uh, and his friends are played by Dan Hedaya again and uh, Diane Weist, who are the highlight of the movie, by the way. Yeah. Um, in fact, there's there's only one scene that actually feels like it's as funny as the movie should be, which is uh, it's right after Dan Hedaya and Diane Weist have found out about this affair, and they come to they come to confront him at his house when he's like about to go on a date with Greta Gerwig and he, uh, this isn't the funny part. Uh, he tries to drive away and he hits, uh, a cat with his car. Hold on. He doesn't kill the cat. Thank God. They go to the vet on the way into the vet. Cause it's icy out and El Pacino's an old character is an old man. He slips and hurts his hip. And so the vet gives him like a tranquilizer. And so there's okay. a scene, Greta Gerwig's in the back with the cat, making sure the cat's okay. So there's a scene there in the vet's waiting room, and you've got Diane Weist on the right side, and Al Pacino on the left side, and Dan Hedaya in the middle. And Diane Weist is just like laying into Al Pacino, and Al Pacino is trying to defend himself, but he's so doped up that he's like slurring. Okay. But for some reason, Dan Hedaya can figure out what he's trying to say so he's oh, like funny. translating to diane weist it's a really funny scene and i feel like that's the kind of like tone and pace that the movie the whole movie should have been at but instead it's really indulgent it wallows it's very like sort of muddy looking um it uh it, it and it also feels like maybe he had sort of um l- there's there's so much going back to things like first family even back further to things like candy and the graduate like that he's commenting on things that are going on in the culture sure and i feel like with the humbling you know it happened you know may i live long enough to be out of touch it feels like he's a bit out of touch and so um the the story of this old man romancing a young woman um feels a little too much like he's a little bit too much on the side of the old man when it's it, right. It, I, like, I feel like he knows he should be condemning him and the movie does condemn Al Pacino's character for this a little bit, but there's, he, he can't quite get the, the, the tone. There's also speaking of problematic stuff. And, and this is being out of touch. Greta Gerwig's character up until this relationship was only with women, including a woman uh, or someone she dated who is, who is transitioned and is played by Billy Porter as a trans man. Oh, okay. And, um, a really good performance, I think from Billy Porter, uh, actually, but Buck Henry clearly doesn't know how to write about this sort of thing. Um, yeah, I, I hate to say it. I, this is an instance where like, I don't think I would trust the creator of get smart to be able to navigate these waters. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it, it's uncomfortable. Um, and it's, it's not particularly, funny uh i mean there are bits that like i think like i mentioned bob newhart and madeline khan being racists in first family there is a bit like they all have lunch together he and gregor and billy porter and it becomes a tense because al pacino is saying offensive things and billy porter's excuses himself to go to the bathroom and al pacino without even thinking goes which one yeah. Um, and that's like it's a funny moment because I think Al Pacino is the butt of the joke there, not Billy Porter or not 
you know, trans identity as an issue is not the butt of the joke. Right. It's Al Pacino's character. And, you know, uh, one thing that I will say, and this is not something I say lightly, but uh, granted, this is a screenplay, not actual people. But, you know, if if an old man wants to date a younger woman, the woman still has her choice whether she wants to be with them or not. So, like, I'm not going to say it's something worthy of condemnation in the world of film, though. Uh you know, it's, it's such a, it's such a, such a common thing. And that like, you know, at least something like as good as it gets where it's not as though Helen Hunt was super young, you know, but she was definitely younger than Nicholson and they at least address it, you know, and she kind of judges him for like, there's a moment she's like, it's like, you're a pretty old guy to not understand this or that. And it's just like, okay, the movie's at least aware of it. And the character is aware of it. And I, I think the movie here is very aware of it. It's just, it, it's aware that it's a cliche that, okay. that, that it's more about, it's not that Al Pacino's character has suddenly developed deep feelings for Gerwig's character. This is about his ego. The movie right. knows that, but I don't think it, I, I think Buck Henry has sort of like, in this case, has sort of lost his touch uh, when it comes to how to uh, how how to skewer these things. Yeah, and it's and I and at the same time, I, I the idea of Barry Levinson, who yeah, he's made some really solid comedies and he's made some really great movies. Yeah, I don't remember recently, the last movie. He, yeah, I don't yeah. remember the last movie he made that I really responded to. Um, but yeah, it makes you wonder, like, if you had a different director. Could this have worked? Do you did think? You see the, did you see the Bay? You saw the I Bay. I did, right? and I did love it. Like, okay, I so do that, love it. So you have one more recently. Yeah. I'd have to go back to ugh, Liberty Wag Heights. The dog. Well, Liberty Heights is after Liberty Heights is ninety nine. Right. So I go back a full twenty one years to a movie that I really like. From him. there are things that I like about Bandits. Um, it's I remember that being. I, I think that's a a pretty good movie. Um, and yeah, and I didn't see Envy, but I know some people really like it. It's kind of like Town and Country. It's got plenty of funny stuff in it. It's got a good cast. Sure. You can't go. You can't go wrong with like it's like Jack Black and Amy Poehler is like the rich couple. I think um, okay. that's pretty funny. Uh, but it's yeah. Well, it's, it seems like a disaster at the same time. And Barry Levinson has made some has made some like HBO movies. He did Paterno. He did The Wizard of Lies, which is. Um, the Bernie Madoff film. The, so he Michelle has Pfeiffer done. Vehicle. What was that? Michelle Pfeiffer vehicle. That's the one. Wizard That's the one. Um, I'm glad that she's back. I know that she's not as big a star as she was, but I'm glad that she's getting consistent work because she's so reliable. Yeah. 100%. You know? uh, I'm a big fan. But uh, yeah, but I do wonder, like just looking at the screenplay itself. Yes, it does seem a little bit tone deaf, but I do wonder if you had a different director and I can't think who it might be. If you had a, a director who was a little bit more comedically inclined, do you think the humbling could have worked? Probably. Yeah, I think okay. so. Uh, I maybe some changes, some tweaks to the way that it, uh, the movie addresses uh, the trans character and, sure. and, and, uh, um, Greta Gerwig's sexuality too. I mean, the idea yeah. that someone can be, I mean, it's, it's not so easy as like, Oh, I'm a lesbian up until I'm not like that's, there's a more complex yeah. way to, to 
talk about that. And I even think. within that, the I'm a lesbian up until I met uh, old Al Pacino. Uh, and right. then I realized, what have I been missing? Uh, <laughs> that's a very different thing. Like the trans thing, I know this sounds weird because like the film is 2014, which isn't that long ago, strictly speaking. But as far as like depiction of uh, trans characters, like the last six years, has made a difference. Yeah, um, and Billy Porter is not trans. You've got a, right, cis, right. a cis actor playing uh, a trans character, which is something that I think uh, you've seen um, so much backlash against. That mm-hmm. uh, there was a whole rash of that at the time, you know, with uh, yeah, yeah. Dallas Buyers Club was what, 2015 or 2016? 13. Um, Dallas Buyers Club was that long ago? Yeah. Wow, yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, um, you've gone from things like Dallas Buyers Club and Transparent where cis actors are being lauded for playing trans characters yeah. to it being like, that's not something we do anymore. Um, yeah. So yeah, the luck, a lot does change. I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, a lot changes in, uh, in, in, in six years. Um, I was just thinking about that. Uh, this is off topic, but uh, we got surprise new Nine Inch Nails music this week. And I was thinking <laughs> about like the five years between the downward spiral and the fragile, the, <laughs> the second and third albums by Nine Inch Nails and how that was like from middle school to my senior year of high school. And like yeah. five years, isn't that long, but I was like a 100% different person than I was in between those two albums. Yeah. Um, and yet uh, the fragile is really great. Anyway, that's way off topic. Yeah. Uh, so to, to start to wrap, well, not start to actually wrap up. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're talking a lot of the movies that we've been talking about are not particularly good or at the very least uh, deeply flawed. And it could be a function of the directors making them, but obviously when he directed a film himself uh, it didn't turn out great um, while still having moments of humor, of course. Um, and I do think, I do think that he's the, and I say this not in an altogether negative way. There are, there are writers and directors that are like this and actors as well. I think he was very much a product of his time, you know, uh, and when you're a product of your time, you can make something like get smart and the graduate and be, you know, ahead of the curve and set these new standards. But if you, if you kind of stay in that time, then the stuff you write can still turn out pretty good, like to die for. Well, yeah, but I you're mean, all... He spent 30 years making good yeah. stuff or at least interesting stuff. Yeah. It was really just the last quarter century that he, uh, and like I said, may I live long enough and have enough of uh, yeah. success to, to grow out of touch like that. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, I, I, I kind of have always been out of touch one way or another, depends on it's I, just brand. a different, what was that? Exactly. It's very <laughs> on brand for me to, uh, it's just the degree to which I'm out of touch depends on who I'm talking to, but at any given moment, I am that. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so yeah. Uh, and certainly movies like the graduate and to die for, and it sounds like uh, candy and certainly what's up doc are, are worth watching. And uh, again, it sounds like protocol as well. So, and yeah, especially if you're a Goldie Hawn fan, yeah, don't sleep on protocols. And I mean, if you want to look at it a certain way, he wrote some really solid uh, female leads, you know, like, yeah, granted, we have this nothing character in Day of the Dolphin, but, <laughs> you know, and, and, and you've got a character like Candy, who is uh, just 
purely a sex object. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, you get stuff like What's Up Doc and Protocol and To Die For. And, you know, he's so there is something to be said for that. Um, but yeah, and, and even in Get Smart, when you think about like the real brains behind everything is Agent 99. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. in, in that regard, and I guess Mrs. Robinson, predatory though she may be, is a st- very strong character. Um, yes. Yeah. And that's something, yeah, I feel like, um, it's a bummer that we ended with a, a couple of, uh, well, stinkers, I guess, yeah. uh, according to the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the esteemed voting body. But, um, I mean, not every screenwriter gets a get smart, much less a get smart and a graduate, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and all these other movies we're talking about. Uh, so quite a phenomenal career and he's hosted SNL like nine times. Yeah. So I guess, uh, check that out. It sounds like, uh, people really liked it. I'll be lucky if I get to five or six, uh, in my, in my time. Exactly. Like I'm, you know, I'm working on like number like eight, but I think I'm going to sputter out pretty quick here. So, uh, all right. Anyway. Um, well, you can find us at battleshippretension.com. You can email us at david at battleshippretension.com or tyler at battleshippretension.com. You can follow me, David, uh, on Twitter at Davy Pretension. Uh, real quick, at the website this week, um, we're trying to find uh, content. We'll have more coming, um, but uh, uh, there's not as many movies to see uh, that are coming yeah. out, so you're not getting as many theatrical reviews, although we will have some theatrical reviews, quote-unquote theatrical reviews, coming out for, for movies that are uh, debuting uh, on streaming um, or or on demand. Uh, but this week on the website, uh, website you've got to uh, check out the movie Meltdown Podcast, where they talk about Battle Beyond the Stars. I've got a review of the film movement classics uh, double feature Blu-ray of Whiskey, Whiskey Galore and The Maggie. Um, now, Tyler is someone that you can follow on Twitter if you want. Uh, his Twitter is at Tyler Pretension. You can see him check in every few days on his uh, at-home workout uh, routine. Yeah, and just watch the uh, expression on my face never change because while I acknowledge objectively the the importance of working out and I have seen uh, a difference in my weight, which is great, uh, I hate every single second of it um like it really like jen was asking me in a way that i felt bad that i had to disappoint her uh but she's like she's like you know i mean like afterwards don't you just feel like that that uh that good feeling like you know that euphoric feeling and i was just like no i'm just glad it's done and i can get back to my life you know you remind uh, me of that uh that old there's an onion headline that was like uh there's some like 30 year old man still trying to find a way to make brushing his teeth fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, that's the thing is I recognize it as a, a very a much needed thing for me, but, uh, whew. yeah, no, thank you. All right. So, uh, anything else to plug? Uh, I mean, there is, once again, there's my, uh, my, my film, uh, real redemption, the rise of Christian cinema, which you can find on the faith life TV platform. Uh, and if you don't feel like, uh, subscribing to them, you can get a two week free trial, watch my movie, and then, uh, you can cancel if you want. Uh, I know that not everybody is going to really get much out of that service beyond, uh, my film. And even that's debatable. Um, but yeah, so, uh, that's, uh, that's about it for me. And uh, if you're looking for something we don't want you to cancel, you head over to patreon.com slash battleship pretension. Uh, This week we talked about our personal uh, favorite 
performances by the late Kirk Douglas. Indeed, so that's, yes. That's what's up at the at the at the Patreon. So yeah, uh, please check that out. And other than that, uh, thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 